All right, well, good morning. Good to see all of you. If you have a Bible with you, I invite you to take it and open to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 3 together this morning. While you're turning there, I just want to say uh, how thankful I am for what the Lord has been doing uh, here this weekend. We've had Sounds of the Season, our Christmas program on Friday and Saturday. And again, this afternoon at 3 o'clock, if you've not seen it yet, you need to come this afternoon. And uh, it has been just absolutely um, spectacular. The, the worship team and worship ministry has worked so diligently for the past uh, several months uh, to prepare this. And I'll just tell you, you will receive a blessing. Uh, Jesus is highly exalted. And uh, above and beyond uh, just the fact that it's great music, it is great music, you'll enjoy that, uh, but it's worshipful and it will point you to Christ. And um, we have been able to see uh, so many people come to faith in Jesus on Friday and Saturday. People have responded. My family is celebrating because last night my daughter Mackenzie responded and put her faith in Jesus. And so we're so thankful for all of that. And uh, just so thankful to, to watch our church family uh, at work and just to watch the body of Christ in all kinds of different ways uh, serve uh, as so many from our community are, are here with us this weekend. Now, hopefully you found your way to Colossians uh, chapter 3. You know, <clears throat> when you get married, uh, there are some major changes that take place. Can I get a witness? Before I, before I met Amy, uh, I lived in a, a, an apartment in downtown Dallas, a little shoebox uh, right across from campus, and it was kind of a hub for all of my college buddies, and it, we were a miserable lot, I'll just tell you. You walked into that tiny little apartment, I think it was 500 square feet, and uh, first of all, there was all kinds of just old, awful furniture, okay? And so we I had like this old little old desk that I would use to study, and then I did have this one really cool piece of furniture, one of the great inventions of mankind, called the futon. Anybody know what a futon is? It's one of those convertible pieces of furniture, and so you can sit on it during the day as a couch, but then it lays down, you can use it as a bed at night, and oh, it was just awful. And then my, my roommate and I were not the cleanest of people, and so it was, just, it was just awful. It was nasty, really. And one of the things that just kind of sticks out in my memory was used coffee cups. Uh, we would drink coffee at all times, day and night, and just leave them around. And all of that changed when I met Amy. Uh, I met Amy, we got married very quickly, and all of a sudden, there was some, some old stuff that had to go, right? The coffee cups left, and in their place were things like flowers. It was wonderful. And the old Taco Bell wrappers were gone, and in its place was like home-cooked food. And the old futon somehow disappeared, I think, one day when I was at work. I came back, it was just gone. And in its place, you know, was some actual real furniture. Some old things had to go, and there were some new things that came in. Why? Because there was a change in status. Went from just Andrew to Andrew and Amy. Went from single to married. And so there were some new realities that came into my life because of a change in my status. Now, the same thing is true when you come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. You experience a change in status. You move from someone who was marked by death to someone who is marked by life. You change from sinner to saved from alienation to adoption. To use the language of Colossians chapter 3, you move from old to new. 
and you get a brand new change in status. And here's what happens. When you experience a change in status, there are some old things that have to go, and there are some new things that come in. Amen? When Jesus is Lord of your life, and that has been the central theme of the book of Colossians, that Jesus is Lord over all. When Jesus is Lord of your life, there are some old patterns and old ways of life and old sins that God wants to take out of your life, and He wants to replace it with something new. He wants to put His righteousness in your life. He wants to develop new ways of living where Jesus is is the center. And that's what Colossians chapter 3 is all about, this growth that God wants to produce in our life where He takes some old things out and puts some new things in. Now, when we look at Colossians chapter 3, we're looking this morning at verses 5 through 11. I want you to notice, before we look at that text, I want you to remind you of chapter 3 verses 1 through 4, because verses 1 through 4 is all about our new status, our changed status, right? We we used to be dead, but then Colossians 3 verse 1 says, we've been raised to new life. That's our new status. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 3, it says that our life is now hidden with Christ in God. That's our new status. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 4 says that when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will appear with Him in glory. That's our new status, right? So verses 1 through 4, Paul is saying, this is who you are now in Christ. Now verses 5 through 11 describe the result of that. If it's true that you've had a change in status, verses 5 and following describe the changes that begin to happen in your life as a result, the old things that God begins to take out, the new things that God begins to put in. Now, I want you to notice the the order of those two paragraphs because it's very important to understand that, and and I'm going to give you some brilliant insight this morning, all right? I'm going to give you seminary-level stuff. You ready for this? Chapter 3, verses 5 five and following come after chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Did that blow your mind? Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay. Th- that actually is very important to notice, okay, because the order of those paragraphs matter, okay? Chapter 3, verses 5 through 11, Paul is going to list some sins that God wants to take out of our life. Some things he wants to, just like that old futon got moved out of my apartment because something new had happened. There's some old sins that God wants to move out of your life because there's been this change in status. But all of that flows out of verses 1 through 4. And verses 1 through 4 is about the work of Jesus that changes us from the inside out. In fact, that's the big truth this morning, that when Jesus is Lord of your life, he changes you from the inside out. That's what verses 1 through 4 is all about. This is who you are in Christ. And then verses 5 through 11, that's the difference it should make in your life. Here's some sin that you need to get rid of. Here's some some old ways of life God wants to remove from you. Now, the reason that that order of that paragraph matters is because this is what Paul is not saying. Paul is not saying that you need to remove sin out of your life so that you can please God. He's not saying that you have to obey and be righteous in order to be accepted by God. If he had put the paragraph of verses 5 through 11 first, then you might think that, okay, if I get rid of this sin, then God will love me and God will accept me. And folks, I'm just telling you that that is a prevalent message 
that you can hear in some churches today, that God will only love you and accept you when your behavior is right. In other words, you obey in order to be accepted. But Paul does the exact opposite. He starts with our acceptance in Christ. And here's the reality. This is the difference between law and grace. Law says that you are accepted by God on the basis of your moral performance. Grace says that there is no degree of moral performance that can make you acceptable to God, that you're simply accepted by God on the merit of Jesus Christ and His work for you. And so the gospel is not obey in order to be accepted. The gospel is you are accepted because of what Jesus has done for you, therefore you obey. And so morality matters. Ethical formation matters. We're going to talk about that this morning in verses 5 through 11, but we have to put it in its proper place. We have to put it in its right order, that that flows from who we are in Christ, not in order to be accepted by Christ. Verses 1 through 4 says, this is who you are in Christ because of Christ. Verses 5 through 11 says, this is the outflow of that. This is the difference that Christ should make in your life. And here's the reality. Christ should make a difference in your life. Amen? If Jesus is Lord of all, He should be Lord over my sin. If He's truly Lord of my life, that ought to make a difference in the way that I live today. And that's what Paul begins to explain in these verses. So verses 5 through 11 just describes, and that's what we're going to look at this morning, some old things in your life that used to characterize you, but because now Jesus has changed you from the inside out, not from the outside in, but from the inside out, some old things that need to die and go away. Okay, so here's, here's what Paul's going to tell the church at Colossae. He's going to say there are some sins in your life that you need to put to death and some sins in your life that you need to put away. Okay, those are the two commands. There are some things to put to death and there's some things to put away. And he's going to tell us what we're to put to death and put away and why. So I want you to notice here in the text, notice the first thing. When, when Jesus is Lord, there are some sins in our life that we need to put to death. Amen? Look at what he says here in verse 5 of chapter 3. He says, therefore, put to death. Underline that. Put to death. That's the main command. Put to death what belongs to your earthly nature. Now, he's going to give us a list of sins that we need to put to death. These are sexual sins, okay? Put to death sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed. And then he uses a summary word that really describes what all of those things are, idolatry put these things to death. Let's just talk about what that means. Sexual immorality, it's fairly obvious, I think, what that word means. <clears throat> the Greek word for this is porneia. It's where we get the word pornography. It just refers to any sexual activity outside of marriage. The Bible teaches that God has a design for your life. We've talked about that this weekend. And His design is for your joy. It's for your flourishing. His design for your life is good. It is for your good. He has a design for every part of our life, including our sexuality. And the Bible teaches us that the way to enjoy and flourish most is not to experience sexuality outside of the boundaries of marriage, but within the context of a 
one man, one woman relationship for life under God. The Christian worldview, the Bible's teaching on sexuality is that that is a gift to be enjoyed in the context of marriage between one man and woman, one woman for life. And God knows that anything outside or beyond of that will, will actually hurt you. It will harm you. It will cause your brokenness. And so God, who intends your good, wants us to live lives of chastity, of purity, of holiness in that area of sexuality. And what we see here with sexual immorality and all of these lists to follow is that they represent attacks of the enemy who wants to destroy and demolish your flourishing. Satan wants to tempt you to think that if you go outside of the boundaries of the way that God has created life to be, that you will actually have fulfillment and joy, but it is a trap and it is a trick. And so Paul says, sexual immorality, put it to death. Then he uses the word impurity. Impurity in Greek is akatharsis. Now, you know what the word catharsis means. We talk about something being cathartic or cleansing. To say something that is akatharsis means it's unclean impure. Uh, some of you might read this filthy, something that's filthy. Um, my children are at the age right now where one or the other of them is usually always filthy, <laughs> sticky. We don't even know what it is. It's just some foreign substance, right, that's just sticky, and there's just filth, right? And Paul says, there are some things that, that you ought not to allow into your life because they are actually unclean. They are filthy, and you're to put it to death. Then he uses the word lust. The word lust, we know what that means. It means to look with desire, to look with desire. Someone once said it's the second look that kills, the second look that kills. It's actually the Greek word pathos. It's the word where we get the, the, our English word passion, the idea of like an unbridled, uncontrolled passion that won't rest until it's satisfied. Paul says put it to death. Then he uses another fairly general term. He says, evil desire. Desire refers to your longings, the things that you want. Paul says, there are evil longings in your heart that used to characterize you before you knew Jesus, but now that Jesus is Lord of your life, you need to put those evil longings, those evil, evil wants, those evil desires, you need to put those things to death. He says, put to death greed. Now, it's interesting that greed is used here. Because we tend to associate greed with money, don't we? Right? I, I, want, I want more. Here he's using it in the context of sexual sin. He's saying there is a kind of immoral greediness, right? The, the word greed literally means to have more, to have more. That's what greed is. It is never being satisfied with what God has given you. It's always thinking that something is better on the other side of the fence. It's not being satisfied with the, the marriage that God has entrusted to you and the children that God has entrusted to you. Maybe it's not being satisfied with the job that God has entrusted to you. And so you're always wanting more. It's the idea of insatiable selfishness, just constantly needing something more than what you have. Paul says, this is really why we sin sexually. It is not a contentedness in our marriages. It's not a contentedness in Christ. It's wanting to have something that you don't have. And then he uses a summary word to describe, really to encapsulate all of this list. He uses the word idolatry. Now, that's an interesting word to use here because sometimes we, we, when we think about idols, usually the first thing that comes into my mind are like little graven images, right? 
you think about these little gods or little idols. But actually, an idol is something that you love and want supremely. Okay, that's what an idol is. An idol is something that you love or that you want supremely. John Calvin said that the human heart is an idol factory. It's an idol factory. That means that we, the human heart just tends to produce all kinds of things that we love more than we love God, that we want more than we want God. And anything that you love or that you want more than you love or want God, that is an idol. I was talking about this passage with Pastor Paul Coleman uh, this week, and Pastor Paul just put it in such a great way. He said that when you want something other than God, more than God, that thing is your God. When you want something other than God, more than God, whatever that is, maybe it's something in, in uh, the area of immorality, like what Paul has been discussing here, maybe it's something else. But whatever that thing is that you love supremely and that you want more than anything else, that is your idol. That is your God. That's the thing that's actually taken the place of God. Notice the language here that Paul is using. He's using throughout this list of sins, he's using the language of longing, of desire. He's saying that the human heart is wanting all of these different things, but God created you to want and to love Him most of all. Blaise Pascal, the French mathematician, said that there's a God-shaped hole in every human heart. What that means is that there's this, there's this emptiness in the heart, and we are, we are searching for ways to fill that. We're looking for happiness. We're looking for joy. But anytime you look for happiness or joy in a created thing rather than the Creator, it will not fill that space. It is a God-shaped hole. And so your longings and your desires were actually, you were created by God to find the fulfillment of your desires, not in the stuff of this world, not in human relationships, not in financial success, not in sexual relationships. You were created to find the fulfillment of the longings of your heart in God Himself. So Paul gives us a command here. He says, put these things to death. Literally, make them dead. Have a funeral for these things. Uh, Don't allow these things to breathe. Don't don't allow these sins to have space in your life, right? If you want to build a fire, you know that oxygen is required to build a fire. Paul is saying, don't give your sin oxygen. One person says, this means to cut off its lines of supply. That's a a vivid way of thinking about this. To cut off its lines of supply. Here's what we do. When we come to know Jesus, we are not not called to continue to feed our sin and have lines of supply for those things to exist. We are called to cut off those lines of of supply, to to not give it oxygen, to not give it breath, to, to put it into a grave. If you have a coyote show up on your backyard, it's a menace, the worst thing that you can do is put out treats for the coyote because the coyote's going to come back tomorrow and the coyote's going to bring the coyote's friends because you have fed it. 
Paul says you have got to starve your sin rather than feed it. Why? Not to earn God's favor, but because you're accepted by God and He's made you new. Because of who you are in Christ. Because of what Christ has done for you. Your response out of love toward Him ought to be to put to death the things you used to love. Why? Because you love Him more. You put to death the things that you used to want. Why? Because you want Him more. Notice what Paul says here in verses 6 and 7. He actually gives us two reasons why you should put these things to death. Number one, he says, because of the reality of God's judgment. Verse 6, he says, because of these things, God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient. He's reminding the church at Colossae of the reality of a holy God who hates sin and will judge it. He uses a very strong word for judgment here. He uses the word wrath. Wrath is the fury of God against sin. Some of you don't typically associate the word fury with God, but actually fury is the appropriate word to describe God's attitude towards sin. Why? Because He knows that sin destroys those He loves. And God's fury against sin is actually a sign of His great love for you. His great hatred of sin is a reflection of His great love for you because He hates anything that will destroy those He loves. And He's going to pour out His fury on sin. So Paul's just reminding us of the reality of God's judgment. God is going to judge these things. If you've been redeemed... Why would you continue to go back to these things? If God has rescued you from this, why would you go back to love the thing that God hates? Why would you want the thing that God is going to destroy? Paul says, think about judgment. Think about the reality of what God is going to do to your sin and allow that to motivate your obedience. Then he gives us a second reason why we should put these things to death. In verse 7, he says, because that's not who you are anymore. I'm so thankful for that. Look at what he says in verse 7. He says, you once walked in these things when you were living in them. Isn't that a great verse? Paul's saying, folks, this is who you used to be. But God's changed you. God's redeemed you. God's made you new. These sins used to just mark and characterize your life until God rescued you and changed you and redeemed you and made you new. And that old way of life is not characteristic of you anymore. That is who you once were, but now, but now, he says in the next verse. There's been a change. God has raised you up to walk in a new kind of life. So remember who you are. When you're tempted to go to those sins of sexuality, remember who you are in Christ. Remember what God has done to make you new and don't live like you've never been redeemed. Amy and I used to live in Dallas. I told you we, I worked in downtown and we ended up moving out of that tiny little shoebox apartment into a little bit larger shoebox, size 11 uh, shoebox apartment in North Dallas. 635 and Preston Road, if you know where that is. And so every day after work, I would take that commute up north on 75 to, to get home. It's like eight miles, 45 minutes, okay? I don't miss that even a little bit. But, you know, you get so used to just taking that same route home that you can kind of do it on autopilot. In fact, you just, you just start turning that direction without thinking about it. 
Well, after a few years, Amy and I built a home in Forney, which is not in North Dallas, it's east of Dallas. And so my route home changed. Instead of going north on 75, I'd go south on 75. But here's what happened for the first few days after we built that home. Because I was so used to that other route, I found myself going north on 75 in autopilot. And here I am stuck in traffic. Like, I'm not even, I don't even live there anymore. I got a whole new house in Forney. What am I doing? It's just second nature to turn that way, right? To go on that same old route. Paul's saying, God has created a new route in your life. So stop driving down the same old roads. That's who you used to be. All right, now here's the last thing. I told you the two major commands, some things to put to death. Now, some things to put away. When Jesus is Lord, there are some, some sins that you need to put away. Look at verse, verse 8. He says, but now, put away. Notice the repetition here. Put to death, now put away all of the following He's going to give us another list. Okay, he's given us a list of sexual sins. Now he's going to give us a list. All of these sins are related to sins of anger or sins of the tongue. By the way, what's the connection here between sexual sins and sins of anger? Well, both of them describe things that are out of control, things that are not submitted to the control of Christ, right? So sins of passion, sins of impulse, whether it's sexual sins or sins of anger, these are like explosive heat of the moment types of things. Why does Paul describe these two lists? Because when you come to know Jesus, one thing that becomes characteristic of you is you're no longer out of control. Now you are under the Spirit's control. So he's going to refer to these sins of anger. Look, look at the list. He says, verse, away, verse 8, put away all the following, anger, wrath, malice, slander, filthy language from your mouth, Verse 9, do not lie to one another, okay? Now, some of you may read through that list and are like, what's the difference between some of those words? Well, there's, they're just different nuances, okay? So, if we can just hold the, the verse up into the light here and turn it in different directions, we'll see the different nuances of the words that Paul is using. The first word he uses is anger. Now, this specific word that he uses here in the Greek New Testament refers to long-lasting, slow-burning anger, like a crockpot. It just kind of simmers. Let me be honest with you. That's my, when I get angry, that's my style of anger. Okay, so you know I'm mad when I'm quiet. Just kind of, you start to stew, right? One, said, one person said that this, is, this anger, it refuses to be pacified, and it nurses its wrath to keep it warm, Then he uses the word wrath. Wrath is another type of anger. Someone said that this refers to a blaze of sudden anger that's quickly kindled and just as quickly dies. Okay? So if one type of anger is a crock pot, this is a microwave. Okay? How many of you would be willing to be real with me this morning? How many of you would say, I'm crock pot angry or I'm microwave angry? Crock pots? Microwaves, okay, and liars, the people who didn't <laughs> hold their hands up. Remember, don't lie to one another. Oh, goodness. 
right? Paul says, look, regardless of whether you're the explosive, atomic anger kind of person or you're the lava flow kind of crockpot sort of angry person, if Jesus is Lord and he's Lord over your whole life, including your sin, that kind of thing is the kind of thing you need to put away. That's the old futon that needs to go. Can I get a witness? Malice. That's the third word he uses here. Malice is the intent to do harm or hurt one another with your words. Some of us know how to deploy our words in order to hurt people. Uh, You've heard the saying, sticks and stones may hurt my bones, but words may never hurt me. Isn't that a bunch of hooey? (laughs) Sticks and stones may break my bones, words may never hurt me. There's a Greek word for that, baloney. Words hurt. James tells us that there is power of life and death in the tongue. And some of us know how to deploy our words to maximum effect in order to hurt the people around us. And Paul says that should not be characteristic of a follower of Jesus. If Jesus has changed you from the inside out, again, not the outside in, this is not some kind of legalistic conformity, but if this is gospel-driven change, he has made you new, then that kind of malice should not be found in your mouth. Slander. That's the next word he uses here. It's literally, the word here is to blaspheme. To blaspheme. Blasphemy, you know, is to speak against or to insult. So we're told not to blaspheme God, not to insult God. But now Paul says don't blaspheme one another. Don't slander one another. Don't insult or speak against the people around you. Watch your words. Amen? Watch your words. How do you speak to others? How do you speak Listen, not just how do you speak to others, how do you speak about others? It's not just how do you speak to them when they're in front of you, how do you speak about them when they're not around? And that's an entirely different thing because here's the reality. We are nice people in East Texas. So we've pretty well figured out how to not speak in a mean way to one another. But isn't it so easy to speak about one another when they're not around, in ways that are ungodly and unkind. Paul says, if you know Jesus, put away slander. And then filthy language. Filthy language could refer just to your, you know, the type of uh, words that you use, but some people translate this abusive speech, abusive speech. I think that's probably more in line here with this list of sins, the idea of speech that, again, harms or hurts. And then lying. That's the last thing he says here in verse 9. Do not lie to one another. To lie can either be to tell a falsehood or fail to tell a truth. So you can lie in either direction, right? You can lie by saying something that's false or by not being honest in what you say. It's dishonest speech. That's what lying is. And so Paul gives us a command. What's the command here? Put away. Put these things away. The, the word put away just has the sense of like casting it off, like, a, like an old set of clothes, right? So on Fridays, I do lawn work on a lot of Fridays, and I have these old, stinky, nasty lawn clothes, right? But if I take Amy on a date Friday night, because of who I'm with, I'm going to take off that old, stinky stuff. I'm going to put on something nice. 
because of who I'm with. Paul says, this kind of language, it's like an old set of clothes that's stinky and nasty. And because you're in Christ, you, you, you take that old stuff off and you put on something new. You put away like an old garment this way of life. Why? Thank you for asking. Look at what the text says. Paul gives us three reasons to put these things away. Number one, because you have a new self. You're a new person. Look at verses 9 and 10. Do not lie to one another. Why? Because you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. This new self is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your creator. Paul is saying, you don't have to live like you used to live. Those sexual sins, those sins of anger or the sins of the tongue, those old patterns, those old routes in your life, you don't have to do that anymore. Why? Because that old self is dead and gone. You have hung up the old self like an, like an outdated pair of clothes. And God has given you a brand new self to put on and wear. And this self is constantly being renewed to look more and more like the God who made you. This new self is beginning to be shaped and formed into the likeness of Christ, in the image of God. And so because you are a new person, put those things away. Amen? Amen. Number two, because you have new relationships. Because you have new relationships. Look at what he says in verse 11. He says something that's a little bit out of place, but I want you to understand why he says what he says in verse 11. Look what he says here. In Christ, there is now not Greek and Jew circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free. Okay. Boy, that kind of seems, as you read through the text, it kind of seems out of place. He's saying, here's some things, sins to put to death. Here's some sins to put away. Because there's no Jew and Greek. No slave and free anymore. It's like, where's, why, where, where's he coming from there? Seems like a hard left turn there. I think this is the reason that he puts that verse in there. When we sin against one another sexually or sin against one another in terms of anger or sins of the tongue, it's usually driven by a wrong view of the other person as either an object of my desire or an object of my anger rather than an image bearer of God who is new in Christ. Think about how many times we are angry or sin with the tongue, for instance, against people who are not like us. Think about the early church, all of the divisions that happened, all of the anger and the sins of the tongue that happened because you have Jew and Gentile now worshiping together. That would drive sins of anger. Paul says you need to realize in Christ there's no longer Jew and Greek. There's no longer slave and free. So all of these divisions that you've set up that cause you to sin against one another in anger or with your tongue, in Christ, those divisions are eliminated. Now, you may say, well, you know, pastor, I'm not angry at other people because, you know, of racial division. Let me ask you this one. Let me just stomp on a toe or two. How about political division? Think about Facebook around November. How, how much are we angry with one another and have sins of the tongue because someone who votes differently than we do? And they're wrong, right? Amen? They're wrong because they don't vote like you. And so, you're a Republican or you're a Democrat, and so I'm mad at you 
and I'm going to speak against you. Paul is saying in Christ, all of those kinds of divisions are viewed differently. You actually realize that you have new relationships, that in the body of Christ, let me just, can I put the cookies on the bottom shelf? In your connect group, if you found out that a fellow believer voted for a different candidate than you, how would you view them in your heart? Would you be angry? Would you speak to them in a certain way or maybe more likely speak about them after connect group? Can you believe they voted for? Paul says when you realize these new relationships in the body of Christ, you're going to put that stuff away. But then there's a third reason to put this stuff away, and that is <clears throat> because you have a new priority now. Right? You have a new self, you have new relationships, and you have a new priority. Look at ver- the last phrase in verse 11. Christ is all and in all. That, that language should remind you of Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, which is describing the fact that Jesus is Lord over all creation. Paul is picking up that language again, now in chapter 3, to say, Christ is all. The reason that you put to death certain things and the reason that you put away certain things is because you realize now that Christ is all that matters. He is your new priority. No longer sins of conquest or desire, no longer sins of anger or the tongue, but Christ is all. Christ is everything to you. Christ is central to your life. The truth of Colossians chapter 1 has become your new reality. He's not just the cosmic Lord of creation. He's now Lord of your life. And so you live differently as a result of it. Amen? Now it's Jesus and pleasing Jesus that matters to me. It's no longer my desires and my wishes and my wants and my longings and my anger and my speech. It's not those things that matter to me anymore. It's no longer pleasing myself. It's no longer fulfilling those impulses and urges. It's now Jesus and pleasing Jesus is that, that's, that's my new priority in life. And all of that, folks, because Jesus has changed you from the inside out, because Jesus has made you new. So he's taken out the old. He's put something new in its place. Amen? My son Austin is reading Lord of the Rings right now. He read read me a great great quote uh, the other night that I found incredibly encouraging. Um, Frodo and his friends are taking this journey, and they're exhausted, and they come up to a stream. They're weary from their travels. So they come to this stream. And uh, Legolas, the elf, right? This is for all you nerds in the house. Um, Legolas, the elf, he, he urges them to, to cross the stream, get to the other side so that they can rest and forget all of their grief. And I love the way Tolkien describes this. Listen, he says, one by one, they climbed down and followed Legolas For a moment, Frodo stood near the brink and let the water flow over his tired feet. It was cold, but its touch was clean. And as he went on and it mounted to his knees, he felt that the stain of travel and all weariness was washed from his limbs. And that quote just struck me because when you live at the command of your sin... You will feel weary, 
you will feel stained. When you just give in to whatever urge you have, you will be worn out and weary. The good news of Jesus is that he invites you to a stream where the stain of your sin can be washed clean, where your weariness can find rest. That's the good news of the gospel. Amen? Don't we sing it? Would you be free from your burden of sin? Would you over evil a victory win? There's what? There's power in the blood. There's wonderful power in the blood. The soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb. Sin stains are lost in its life-giving flow because what? There's power in the blood. Let's bow together. If you're a believer in Christ today, walk in who you are. Remember what Christ has done to make you new and live like it. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus as Savior, in a moment we're going to sing one final song. At the end of the service, you can walk out to the lobby There are decision prayer partners there. They're wearing badges so you can identify them. And someone would love to talk with you today about how you can come to that cleansing stream. Father, we are so thankful for all you've done in our lives. We're thankful that you've made us new. We're thankful for the Holy Spirit that empowers us to obey. We're thankful for the work of the Son in redemption that says that even when we fail, we're still adopted. So Lord, empower us through your Spirit to live like your Son. We pray in His name.